We're going to continue this morning uh, in, in the, their new sermon series. So I'll get all my stuff bobulated here called Being the Church. It's a sermon series we're doing in 1 Corinthians. It's been an awesome study. Uh, we are about, what, like mm, two-thirds of the way through the book right now, I would say, something like that. I'm pretty bad at math, but something like that. We've been studying verse by verse the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and we wanted to study it specifically because it talks about how we should be the church, right? The language this morning I used already, I said, you know, um, we, we were up at the church late. No, we are the church, right? Like, this is the church. The people who believe in Jesus Christ. And so it's really important then, if we are the church, that we know what it means to be the church. God doesn't leave us alone on this. He gives us instruction from his word. And that's a theme that we've seen develop through the text, right? It's that, there, that, that God, you remember last week, Paul started talking about the story of Israel. And he's applying the stories of Israel to the people of Jesus Christ. I said this last week, and I really believe it. He's absolutely knitting together the one narrative of God from the very first revelation to Abram to the very end culmination in the city of God, right? There's this culmination of, of God's people. And so all these things are knit together. He uses them as examples to us of how we ought to be or ought not to be. Um, you know, Dale was saying this morning, like, there, there's, this, there's as many things in the Scripture that's a warning to us as there is a blessing to us. And a lot of times we want to read all the blessings. Oh, the Lord's going to bless me. The Lord's going to grow me. The Lord's all about me. But you must know, and I would even say proportionally, there's probably more warning in the text than blessing. It's like God is not to be trifled with, and we ought to take that into consideration when we get super comfortable saying, yeah, 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 God, I get it. Next. That, that we think, no, God's way bigger than that in our life. And so Paul made the case uh, last week in Corinthians that like there's examples that we ought to be aware of, that we ought not to follow um, because they can lead to a disaster in our lives as they have for the people of God who've been disobedient. So we have the opportunity to do that. So this morning we're going to get into this whole idea of examples. That's our topic for today. And I wanted to ask a question when we get started this morning. And I didn't look at my engagement sheet yet. I have it up here amongst all my papers. There's a little space. I'm going to ask you to take a pen. Hopefully you have a pen if you don't have a pen. And hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are the chair rows around you. But I'm going to ask you to take a pen. And there's a little spot like right here next to the word God that just happens to be that way. And I'm going to ask you to draw like a circle, kind of an oval circle or something, a table. A, a, a conference table, right? Like you've been to a conference room, you have the board meeting. And I want you to think, in, in the middle, I want you to write the number nine. And I want you to think of nine people. You don't have to do this right now this morning. But I want you to think of nine people who've been spiritual examples for you in faith. Uh, I did this, I, I think I mentioned this before, I did this as an exercise in, in, uh, when I was going to school, and it was really helpful because you begin to realize there have been people who've been modeling behavior for you. And so for some of you, that might be your mom or your dad, who, who were believers, and you got to watch them live out their faith. It might be a coworker, it might be a pastor, it might be a friend, it might be your spouse, it might be one of your kids. It might be someone that's distant and that, that you look from afar and you watch how they live their life. But think of nine people that are, that are spiritual uh, leaders or spirit, and I don't mean leaders like, you know, they're not in, I mean, they're just in your life for real. We're going to come back to that later. But we're not going to, it's not going to be a quiz on it, but that's a good exercise to, to keep in mind how we've gotten where we are spiritually, what influences we've had that have changed us, challenged us, and encouraged us to become believers in Jesus Christ, right? We know that God reveals God's self, but God uses certain mechanisms and methodologies for that, and one of them is amongst his people, amongst his people. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is like being examples in Christ, what it means to be an example in the church, and how we ought to do that. 
Now what we're going to do before we get into the word, we're going to do what we always do at Family Bible Church. We're going to pray. Now this whole operation is today is to glorify God. Hope that's why you came. If not, I'm going to ask you to join us in that, that we would glorify God, that we could learn from him, and that we could um, just, just praise him for who he is uh, in this life. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance to gather together as your called out people, that we have come into this place now to Lend, you know, it's such a tiny amount of time, an hour, hour and a half of our time to focus on you. We know that we can focus on you every day of our lives, but yet we set aside this time, this morning, to listen, to sit at your feet and learn from you, Father. I pray that as we do that, that you would teach. Your, your word says if we ask for wisdom, you give it. Um, we need you to open our minds to your truth. We need you to open our hearts to the possibilities. We need you to help us to live out the, the, the differences and how we, you, we see you call us to live and, and how we tend to live or, or how people around us tend to live and how we tend to get led by others instead of you. So Father, this morning, if no other time in our life, be leader. Be, be the one who rules our hearts and our lives. And Father, would you teach us? Uh, we pray your Holy Spirit would be our counselor, our divine intervener that would, you know, just help us to know you. Help, Father, break our heart for the things that need to be broken and, and, and draw us into the place we need to be drawn into. And that's a big request, Lord. And we join all the saints of history in crying out to you to do the work amongst your people. Would you lead us, Father, today? We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So here we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. It's on page 798. He's one of our Bibles. And uh, this is exactly where we left off last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. The opening line here is going to connect it. I told you all this. This is one letter, right? We've been studying it for weeks and weeks and weeks, but it's one letter, and it's all connected together. There's these threaded thoughts that keep coming back around, keep coming back around. You can see that in here. But this very first word in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my dear friends... So when you see a therefore, it means there's something that was just previously stated that we ought to pay attention to because what's going to come next is going to come from that conviction or that, that belief or that, you know, what, what God's revealed. And so this therefore here um, ties these texts together very intimately. But before we ask what the therefore is therefore, right, this therefore is actually unique. I was surprised to find, because there's therefores all over the Bible, but this therefore is used twice, and it's actually an emphatic therefore. It says, indeed, because of that, it's not like, therefore, here's my conclusion. It's like, look, look, because you see that, now this. It's much more passionate. It's an emphatic. It's a different word in the Greek, and it's used twice, actually, in 1 Corinthians. It's used right here, and I believe it's used in chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore... If what I eat causes any brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. That's when Paul's talking about food sacrifice idols. He's like, if I'm screwing up a brother or sister, I'll swear it off for their sake because it's such a big deal that they not be, you know, confused about what's happening as far as God's ultimate and supreme position in our life as Lord. That any other idols, I will swear it off if it means a brother or sister is going to stumble. And then here he says the same word. I just find that fascinating. Anytime I find a unique, and 1 Corinthians has a lot of these unique words you don't find anywhere else in the Bible, I'm like, that's interesting. So there's twice here. And so in verse 14, therefore, well then we have to ask the question, what's the therefore here now? And I told you, because we have these biblical witnesses, because we have these biblical models of the Hebrews being unfaithful to God, even as he delivered them into the promised land. If you've not... You've been reading Bible 365. It's been amazing because the, the uh, Jewish people continually follow after false gods even while God is with them. 
they continue to be led astray by false gods. And, and Paul gives four particular examples. I'm not going to re-preach last week, but there's four examples where he says, and then they did these things, and it was not good. Matter of fact, they died in the desert because of their disobedience to the very God who was leading them. And so he says, therefore, because we have these biblical examples, how we ought not to behave before God, and what's he say then? So you have all these bad examples. What should we do? Therefore, flee from idolatry. He says, run away from false gods, right? I always think of two things. I think of the, uh, um, I think of, uh, the Monty Python sketch, you know, run away, you know, they're fighting the rabbit. And, uh, okay, maybe you don't know. Okay, I know. But, uh, you know, it's the holy hand grenade. Okay, it's like, run away. They're like, what, this little rabbit? What's the big deal? And then they go over there and they're like, like, attack them. It's really terrible. Don't go watch that movie. But then they're like, run away. You know, they're on swords. They're like, ah. And they get behind the thing looking over. Ah, you know, how many men did we lose? You know, kind of a thing. Or, I think of Forrest Gump, you know. Just run, Forrest, run. Where are you going? I'm running, man. That's kind of what God says about idolatry. Like, if, and now, here's the thing, right? We talked about discernment. You have to be able to discern where God is working, where he's not. We're not supposed to be so far from the culture that we can't have a conversation with the culture. But when we're engaging, we ought not let the culture become the God of our lives. And I think that's the key. And I'm not sure I did a good job last week of saying this. But the minute you begin to find the thing usurping the role of Jesus Christ in your life. So say you're going to get involved in a ministry, and you're like, I love this ministry. And you, you begin to invest, invest in it and pursue it, pursue people there for the gospel in that opportunity. And then you start to like the opportunity more than the king of the opportunity, which is Jesus Christ. That's where you, it breaks down. You get in there and you start to enjoy the stuff more than the stuff maker, more than the king of our hearts. And this is, and man, I had a good reminder of this in the book of Revelation. I told you that we're going from this, like, you know, God's uh, revelation in a Abram all the way to the revelation. And, uh, you know, one of the things we all remember is when Jesus returns and Jesus is coming back, he has words for his church. In Revelation, it's pretty scary. He goes to the seven churches. I have some problems with things you've been doing. So that means that, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So that means we're still in this inter, uh, like, revelation period, this inter-incarnation period. And so, the reality is that um, God has words for us. And so rather than tell you what we ought to do and not to do, I'm going to challenge you to discern what God would have you to do and not to do, right? And, and there's some ways we can do that um, by our own understanding what God is calling us. But here's another big one, folks, by people around us that we know are believing in Jesus Christ. It ought to give us pause when a fellow brother or sister in Christ says, whoa, 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 this, what's going on here? Like, that ought to really cause us to slow down and check ourselves um, before we proceed in a, in a way that's maybe really not of God. Now, you might have that. You might be engaging in something, and then people say, well, whoa, whoa, slow down. And you go, okay, and you slow down, you look at it, and you go, no, I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. I'm doing this because this is what God's calling me to do. Okay, then you proceed into that, because there are some things that people get into, like I said last week, that aren't for everybody. But we ought to discern where God is working and God is not and we ought never let the work become our idol and that's a dangerous dangerous thing that we would rather have the stuff that's the fundamental sin actually that the that they worship the created things rather than the creator see that's that's the idol factory in our own hearts okay and so paul says therefore flee run run away from idolatry you see it in your life and that's where i'm asking you to discern it then flee from it don't play with it don't think about it. Don't go, Jesus doesn't mind too much if I elevate this for a little bit more than him. Flee from idolatry. And that's a work, a spiritual work in our lives. So then Paul's going to make a case here. He's like in verse 15, I speak then to sensible people. 
So judge for yourselves what I say, right? You discern what I'm talking about, if it's of God or not. Is it not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks? Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? I'm read 17 and we're going to break this down. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And so he says, as examples in the church, and this is our, our first point today, we participate. We participate. Now, we said something close to this a couple weeks ago, like we partake, but we get to actively co-labor is the actual idea. We get to work uh, with God. We get to experience God in this gospel work. And he says, I'm speaking, discern for yourselves. And, and there's some... Okay, there's some threads over here we're going to have to see. We've been talking about food sacrifice to idols, and Paul brings this right back around to Jesus Christ, and this says, is not the cup, and by the way, the word thanksgiving there is not eucharisto, not thanksgiving, but it's blessing. Is the cup of blessing that we participate in, that we bless, as the way it actually reads, not the blood of Christ? Is, is not the cup of blessing for which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ. And we're heading toward communion, by the way, next week. We're going to actually have communion. We're going to be talking about communion next week and what that means for the church. And so he's like making this case. We're participating in the very blood of Christ when we bless the cup, whenever we participate uh, with him. And it's not the bread that we break, participation in the body and the strengthening. And there's so many layers of this. I, I, I can't get off on this because we could be there the whole time. But that we literally, you know, there's so much in our, in our, um, our spiritual heritage about bread. Um, a friend of mine this week that uh, it's Melchizedek, who's the priest of bread and wine, right? And that bumps into Abram, right? And so, um, it, and oh, there's a whole, whole bunch there. I can't get into. But there's this idea that there's this continuation. And you literally, the word says what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That we participate in a mysterious way in his suffering and in his body. And those are two different things. That's like the suffering of Christ and then the work of Christ. Through communion, but in a whole, more holistic sense. Right? It's not magic bread. It's not magic juice or wine. It's the actual, it's the blood and the body and blood of Christ that we participate in, in our faith, that we get to partake with him. And he says, is it not true? Are you not partaking with Christ when we live our lives as examples, when we do these things, live out our faith? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, because we're all partaking from that one loaf. So we're all eating from the same place, right? We have, and this is a case that Paul makes over and over again about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is such a tendency for the people of God to divide, but the reality is that we, um, we break bread uh, together. We partake um, in Christ, the same Christ. I just want to tie this up real quick. So there's this idea that the gospel's timelessness is experienced by us now in our lives of faith. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, oh, those people then, they had this and they had... Listen, we have Christ amongst us, with us, and we participate in the same cup and in the same bread and in the same gospel and the same hope as all the people that God has always redeemed. And that's a great big thought. But that's the reality. The word there is koinonia, and it means a fellowship or a partnership or a sharing. 
in Christ. That same Christ that was there for Abram, that was there for Moses, that was there for Noah, that was there for our Old Testament heroes, that was there for um, uh, David and uh, the prophets. The same, the same Christ that was there for John when he proclaims the breaking forth of, of the gospel. Um, the same that was there for uh, the gospel writers who got to walk with Jesus and witness his life. The same that was there for Paul who has knocked off his horse on, his, on the road and blinded. The same Christ is with us. We're partakers. We're participants in the gospel heritage. And we ought to recognize that. We're, we koinonia, we participate. And this is the really big thing about being the church, right? Is that it's not for those other people. It's us. We're invited in. We have to figure out what God, we don't have to figure out, but we get to figure out the way God's going to use us in our story how he's going to change us. And that's a grand narrative that we ought to understand. Here he goes again in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel now. He's going to go back. Is, do not those who eat the sacrifice and participate at the altar, the tabernacle, right? Were they not participating also with God in their sacrifices? Do I mean that the sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? See, he's tying it back in. Or that an idol indeed is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, and they're not offered to God. And this is why idolatry is such a problem, right? Because, we're going to get into this, but there is a battle going on continuously. You know, it's easy to watch, and man, I've been grieved. I'm sure you have too as we watch headlines and stuff, what's going on in the world. But that's nothing new. That's nothing new. It's almost like we wake up every morning and go, oh my gosh, there's evil in the world. Again. Like, Yeah. It's a real fight, a real battle. And he says that the, the, the sacrifices that are offered by pagans, that's by um, non-believers or, or by the world, you could say, by, by eth uh, ethnos, which is just the peoples, right, are offered to demons. They're not worshiping the true God. They're not offered to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons, right? Now look at 21. Indeed, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons, he said flee from idolatry but he's like you can't do that you can't do that and so our next point is as examples we must be oop, out of order spoiler alert we're all wacky here oh there it is I found it finally single minded we must be single minded right because there's this idea that um, you, you are going to participate with the Lord or participate and the word says what with demons he's like that's how this breaks down right and we're going to get into how that, actually, how that actually works. But we have this um, idea here that uh, there's only, uh, it's just a switch, right? And so as, as examples, we have to be single-minded. He says, indeed, um, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord, right, and drink the cup of demons. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And this is the big problem he has. You can't, you can't be, and this, and you can't be, I'm with Jesus on Sunday morning, and I'm with the world Monday through Saturday. Like, he's like, that's a broken lifestyle. You can't live that way. You need to be with Jesus all the time, or you're with the world all the time. But you, you, you can't have a divided um, uh, allegiance, right? And so we ought to be wary. We ought to flee from idolatry. We ought to, and the, here's the counter thing. So you go, well, how am I going to live my life then? And we're going to talk about that, right? But it's, to, it's for the Lord, like, it's for Jesus. It's for the blessing. It's for the good things. 
You wake up in the morning and you see the news and it says there's evil in the world. And you go, oh yes, there's evil in the world. But I want to be on the side of God. I'm not going to participate in it. I'm not going to contribute to it. I'm not going to eat at that table. But rather, I'm going to eat at the table of Christ, the anointed, the very Son of God. And this, church, is why the gospel is so different from everything else. It's so different because we are participating in what God has already done in Jesus Christ. We are living into the reality of his kingdom come, his presence with us. So we have this, uh, this uh, idea to be single-minded. Uh, we cannot participate in both sacrifices. And this is why idolatry is such a, a dangerous thing. Uh, by the way, I do want to say that um, this, the, the word demons is like, okay, so we believe in demons. Yeah. Yeah. The idea in the Bible is fallen angels. Those who have been disobedient to God, right? And, and, and there's a spiritual warfare. Now, here's the thing. There is a couple of battles that are going on for us. And the one is that we don't think that there's anything beyond what we see. I shouldn't say we. We think there's things going on we cannot see. But the world doesn't think there's anything beyond, going beyond, beyond what we can, they can see. So if it's not a material, tangible thing, they go, no, no. But the problem with, even for them is, they sense there's a greater narrative. The human condition awakens us to some other reality. We are not mere animals. We have an awareness of what's happening around us. And we long for the story. This is why our culture, though rejecting God, will reach out to all kinds of fanciful ideas instead. And, and the gospel of the world becomes anything but Jesus. Anything but Jesus, just not Jesus. Because that's a single-minded calling. It's a delineation of the facts. He's like, you're with me or the demons. And so, so we have th th that reality, right? Uh, let's see, 21, 22, yeah. Um, and listen to this. So then Paul says, about this kind of casual taking from the world and taking from God at our leisure, right? We're going to kind of have a foot in both worlds. He says this, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? No, it says, the Bible says, our God is a jealous God. Jealous. He says, I, I claimed you. You're my people. It's a bigger deal to him whenever his people are disobedient than whenever the world's living disobedience. Dale said it this morning. They're, the world and all of us in it already stand condemned before we're Christ reveals himself to us. But as those who Christ has revealed himself to, for us to um, be disobedient or to uh, intentionally kind of flaunt his lordship of our life is deeply offensive. It creates jealousy. No, you're mine. I've said this before, church, but if you want to be a miserable Christian, pursue the world. You'll be miserable doing it. Because God did not make you to pursue the world. He did not make you to participate with demons. And so when you're miserable in the moment, you can say, praise God, I thank you that you made me miserable enough to remember that, that I'm after you in my life, that you have claimed me for your own. Do not, we do not, and this is where we get the biblical models from, we do not want to arouse the Lord's jealousy. You see people around us and, and us sometimes, and you say, God's dealing with me, right? Because he loves us. Are we stronger than he is? That's, he's, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> We're not. We're not. So we have to be single-minded, right? All right. Uh, so here's going to break down. We heard this before, too, this refrain. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. That remember the building thing we did, right? Everything builds up. Some things puff up. It's not all 
it's, it's, all, it's, it's permissible. You can do it, but you shouldn't do it. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And this is 24. I'm going to see if I can find my way back now. Yeah. So as examples, we always seek the good of others. We see it here. As examples, we always seek the good of others. No one should seek their own, but others. No, and, and that's benefit, that's uh, pleasure, that, that we're put here for other people, that that's why God has called us to be his people, that we would seek the good of other people around us, other people in our life, other people at work, other people in our family. And this is, and I'm, I'm telling you, the, this flies at the heart, and I'm just telling you some experience, of the idol factory in my, my own life, right? In our own lives. Because ultimately, there's a battle between being self-satisfied and satisfying others. There's a battle between being pleased with everything I have. And, th and, and if you look, often, we act like, um, what is that, like a, a three-year-old doesn't get their way, you know? I want it now. I want it my way. And, and, there, and there's an idol under that that says, if I was in charge, God, I would do this differently. And that's a dangerous and wicked uh, understanding of your created reality <laughs> because you are a three-year-old toddler screaming at the one who made you right he is God and we are not we are not stronger than him and therefore we ought not to be seeking to be self-satisfied no one should seek their own good so as examples then we look for the good of those around us we have to constantly be reminded to continue to do uh, good things because we have a tendency to stop we have a tendency to wear out I've done enough for other people. I've taken enough flack for this. And I don't know if you ever feel that way, but I feel that way. I'm, I'm done. I've done enough. Let somebody else do it for a while, right? And then the Lord reminds me, no, don't stop. Don't, don't cease in doing good because that's why we're here. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Um, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience because the earth is the Lord's and the, and the fullness therein. By the way, that's Psalm 24.1. I don't have it on the screens this morning, but Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. I want you to just let that sink in for a minute that when you wake up in the morning, is there evil in the world? Yes. But when you wake up in the morning, everything you see, everything you do, everything you enjoy, the air you breathe is a gift from God. It belongs to God right? And, and uh, one of the amazing things about the, the, the biblical narrative is it's holistic in its interpretation of what God owns. You know, you remember uh, Abram was like, look at the stars of the sky. And back then you didn't have light pollution, so you could really see the stars of the sky. See if you can count them, because I'm going to bless you with more heritage than that, right? Like, it's this all-encompassing idea. Um, God spoke everything into existence. And so we have this, um, this reality that... Uh, that um, we can participate. Okay, here we go. Uh, let's see where I was at. I got totally distracted by the glory of God. I apologize for that. Um, oh yeah, he's going to give three examples here because we're going back into the meat market idea, but it says you can eat anything in the meat market you want. If an unbeliever, this is in verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, Eat whatever he puts in front of you without raising questions of conscience. Don't be like, I don't eat with people like you. I don't eat that kind of food. No, if you want to go and they invite you and there's no conversation about idolatry, yeah, go and eat it. So the first is the meat market. We're going to go out publicly and buy things. He's like, don't worry about it. You can eat anything there. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. 
There's nothing you're going to imbibe that's going to be offending to God, is what Paul's saying, as far as the food laws. If some unbeliever invites you then, and you want to go, well, go and eat whatever he puts before you. But, in verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been sacrificed to an idol, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. Both for the sake of the man who told you, and for conscience' sake. <coughs> and so you see that and you go, okay, there it is. So you're going to have a bad a conscience. No, no, no. Because the very next thing he says is, not for your conscience, I mean, but for the other person's conscience. Because they just told you they offered it to a demon. They've offered it to an impure spirit. And you ought not then to sit down with someone who's confessing to you, this has been offered to demons. You're going to go, no, I don't eat with demons. And it's, why do you say that? Not because you don't love them, because you do love them. Because we're different. We're not going to knowingly enter into this with you. And so there's some models here, right? So there's a public idea um, that you're out, you can have anything you want. And then if an unbeliever invites you to eat with them, yeah, set and eat. If you want to, set and eat. But if someone's laying this out and saying, this is wicked, this is evil, come and enjoy, you say, no way. No way would I participate in that for the sake of their conscience, that they would know that there's a difference between those who follow Christ and those who follow the world. I won't chase it. I won't go with you there. I won't do that thing. So there's the kind of the model. Paul says this then. Why would my freedom be judged by another person's conscience, right? He doesn't judge myself like I judge myself, but that's why I, I wouldn't participate. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something that I thank God for? And so, um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, so we're still on, yeah, see, I got lost for a minute. I was like, wait, where are we at here? Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so we're seeking, we're seeking God in all these things. Um, but this last thing he says here is, if I partake, partake in the meal with thankfulness, right? And that's um, uh, cherished, that's grace. Why am I denounced for something that I thank God for? And that's Eucharisto. Why do I make a point of this? Because this is a really practical application for us, right? And I just want to break this for a second. He says, if I'm going to participate in a meal with an unbeliever with thankfulness and grace toward Christ, why would I be condemned for that? Why would that be a condemnation for me? And so one way that works itself out, and I never really understood this, like I, you know, and maybe this isn't the only explanation for this, but um, have you ever had that said? Uh, who wants to say grace? you eat a meal? I remember um, Dave Stahl comes to mind, and he, he would have his grandkids ask him questions. He would, I'm going to go look in the Bible and see what that says. And here's where Paul says, if I'm going to say grace at a meal and give thanks, you Christo, the idea is the same thing. You break it. This is the same thing that Jesus did whenever he was um, with the disciples at the Last Supper. He, you Christo, he gave thanks to God for the table he was eating at, which was going to be symbolic. It was symbolic of what was going to be his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. And so we have this participation in grace. And I wonder, church, do you pray before you eat? And if you pray before you eat, is that just a habit? Well, that's what we do. We pray before we eat. I wonder, church, if you pray before you eat, do you do it in your home? You know, some of you might watch that, um, the, the show, uh, the Duck Commander guys, uh, what's that show called? Duck Dynasty, right? And they usually end every episode around a table with food, and they say a real simple, thanks, God what you provided for us. And I can tell you, interestingly enough, and I know they get lambasted and all this stuff for, for, for all kinds of things, but listen to me. What a good 
example. What a good witness. The world goes, what? God, food, what? Let me ask you this. In your family or yourself, when you have a meal in public, do you pray? No, I don't want to be that holy roller that, you know, people look at me weird if I... Do you think? Have you ever sat in a restaurant and watched somebody pray before they ate? I think it's a good witness. Paul says here, how can I be judged if I, if I, say, if I say grace and if I Christo to God? How can that meal possibly be bad if I sit down to eat it and I say, God, thank you so much for this food and thank you for the servers around me and thank you for the cooks and thank you for the workers in the field and thank you for all your creation that brought this meal and thank you for the ability to earn that I could participate. Thank you for the ability to tip the server at the end. Thank you for my wife who would make this meal. Thank you for my husband who would cook this. Thanks for my kids who would make this coffee. Thanks for all these things you've given us. Receive it as a gift from your hand. How is that not a good witness in the world? How is that not a good example? I'm not telling you you have to do it, by the way. Don't go, oh, now Bill said we've got to pray. And God wants to like, okay, who's going to do it? Because you don't want to do it, you know. But maybe you already do it. I just want to say, how do you know if that's not a great witness. Paul, where does it come from? If, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Do, do you think that Paul might have been sitting in the temple with the unbelievers and they got to eat the food that was sacrificed idols they hadn't said, hey, come on, eat. Yeah, I'll eat with you. And he sits down and he says, can I give a word of thanks first? Have you ever done that? Have you ever sat with somebody and, hey, do you mind if, do you mind if I pray real fast before we eat? Oh, no, no, go ahead, man. All right. God, thanks for this food. Thanks for my friend. I mean, that takes awesome. Eucharisto, giving thanks, that we could be a witness, a model, an example to those around us. Maybe just enough to cause people to pause and go, hmm, why would they do that? How strange. How strange. You know, one of the things that's problematic is we often are afraid to be a little strange. Paul says, well, why would I be judged for that? Here's the cusp of it, and this, the, the cusp of it, and this is why uh, I was confused a moment ago because I'm like, wait, wait, because we're getting to a point here, 31. <laughs> so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And so examples, as examples, we, I'm going to find it. Oh, no, I'm not. It must be back. We glorify God. <laughs> this is like whack-a-mole. We glorify God. That's what we're after here. That's what we're trying to do. Why worry about food sacrificed to idols? And, and, and why worry about how we interact with uh, men and women? Because we're trying to glorify God. We're, we're trying to submit to God's design for who we're made to be. And so he's like, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God, the doxa, that God would be raised, elevated. That someone might say, that's kind of strange. Look at verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Here's Paul's conviction again. Why am I doing all this stuff? Why am I praying? Why am I giving thanks for meals? Why am I leading this kind of example life? So that others might be saved by God through Jesus Christ. I want you to see that there, he breaks out three groups he's worried. That, I think this is a conviction for Paul. But three groups he's worried about making stumble. You know, it's easy to read Paul and go, man, Paul was anti-Semitic. He was against the Jews. No, he wasn't. 
He was for the Jews. He wanted the Jews to know the Messiah. He wanted the Jews to know that, that Christ had come. His proclamation was that they would be saved, right? And so he's like, we ought not make other people stumble. We ought to glorify God by what we do. Um, so he says, I'm, I'm worried about the Jews. I don't want to make them stumble, right? So I think it's important to recognize that there's a possibility we can cause other people to stumble around us. And then for the Greeks is the ethnos, the nations, right? Actually, no, it's the Hellenists here. So, so it's this idea that it, it's a particular group of people. And these were philosophical people. They were worldly people, but they were wise people. The idea was they were well-educated. And he's like, I don't want to make well-educated people stumble. I don't want to make these Hellenists stumble in my examples. But then the third I find particularly interesting because he says, I don't want to make the church of God stumble. I don't want to make the church of God stumble. So part of the way I live my life is so that all of you don't stumble in your own faith. That all of you don't misunderstand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this these threefold idea for Paul kind of defines his life and ministry. I don't want to make the fellow... Now, I want to break this down a little differently here for a minute. I'm going to take a little liberty with it and say this. He don't want to, he don't want to unnecessarily offend religious people. Only necessary offense. He don't want to unnecessarily offend non-religious people, right? He only wants to necessarily offend. <laughs> Let me tell you this. The very idea that there's a God is offensive enough to people who believe there's no God. That's offensive enough. You, that's enough. You don't have to do anything else to offend them. Just say that there's a God, and that's offensive enough. And that's a necessary offense because it's true. But we ought not unnecessarily offend people. And, the, and then um, the third would be believers, because who's the church of God? Those who are believing in Jesus Christ and who are called according to his purpose, according to the letter of 1 Corinthians. So those are, those are the people you start with, the religious, the non-religious, and the believers. He's like, I don't want to make those folks stumble. So we can glorify God by what we do in our lives, right? But we can glorify God, and this is interesting, when we don't cause other people to trip. That's glorifying to God. When we don't cause them to stumble. When we're attentive enough to our own behavior and convictions that we don't cause those around us to trip up in their own faith. And so I have a question. I want us to think about this. Do, does the action of our lives, or the things that we do, glorify God? Right? Just examining things in our life and we say, that's a fundamental question we should ask. Is this glorifying to you, Lord? Is this something that's worthy of one who's called by your name? Because that right there would set us away from the table of idols in so many ways. You would know in the moment, this is not glorifying to God. I will not participate with demons. I will not eat at this table. And you will, right? But a second question we could ask is this. Is what I'm doing causing someone else to trip or stumble in their own faith? And we ought to be cautious about that. Because we're to build up, not puff up. We're to help them construct faith in their lives. So as examples then, we're here to glorify God. Now, verse 1 of chapter 11. So then Paul gets to this crux of it here. He says, okay, so follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, right? That's what his command is to the church. And I'm just leave it there. Look at verse 2. I praise you for, what's the word say? Remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings that I passed on to you just the way I did. And the word there is, comes right after verse 1, which says, Follow me as I follow Christ. And he says, and I thank God that you've been following me. The word says he, they've been mimicking him. And so the church in Corinth has been mimicking Paul. They've been behaving like Paul behaves as Paul behaves the way Christ behaves. 
And so he says, I get praise, I got praise for you in this. I want to, I want to, I want you to, um, I want, I want to praise you for remembering me and everything, for mimicking me in your behavior, and for holding to the teachings that I've taught to you. Verse 3, but now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should not have her hair cut off. And, if, and it is a, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she ought to cover her head. Okay, we're like, wait, what just happened? We just like, whoa. Paul's like, going over here. We're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. The first thing I want you to understand about this whole teaching is it's about authority. When Paul talks about headship here, he's talking about, he, it does mean head. It means a literal head, like the one you can touch on top of your body, right? He's teaching about what it means to have some authority um, over our lives. And so the, the next thing we want to know is as believers or as examples to others, we are under authority. We're under authority. And that means that we are not here of our own accord. Your life is in happenstance, that you've been placed there for a purpose. You're under authority. And he makes the case here. He says this, and I'm going to break this down quickly here, but it says every man, and that does mean man, it's Andros, is uh, the head of every man is Christ. And he's going to come back to this in a minute. We're going to talk about that too. But ever, the head of every man is Christ. That's Messiah, the anointed one. And the head of every woman is man. The word woman there, it can be interpreted a couple of different ways. It can be interpreted woman, so the head of every woman is man. But it can be interpreted and probably more rightly interpreted as wife, right? Because remember, he was talking about marriages in the church and how we ought to live and how you ought not to leave your wife because you become a believer in Christ or leave your husband because you're a believer in Christ. And so he's going to teach some some models of authority, listen, some models of submission to the people of God. And he says this, the, the head of every man is Christ, the ruler, the Lord, the anointed. He's ruling over those men and those husbands. And so he makes that case here. And the head of every woman, is, every, every wife is her husband. There's an authority issue here. And he's delineating it. And then, lest you could almost sense, by the way, if I read the text, I, can, I just go, oh boy, this is going to be fun. And then I go, man, what, why, why bring this up? We were doing so good with this idol, this thing out there, but now we've got to have this headship conversation, Lord. And, and then Paul goes from men to women, and then from women to Christ to God. So he makes this case, he goes, Christ was under authority of God the Father. He wasn't, he wasn't here of his own accord. Matter of fact, interestingly enough, and I just, the blows away, if you look at the modeling he does here, men, the heads of men is Christ, the heads of, of wives are their husbands, and the head of Christ is God. That would mean in some mysterious way, I'm not getting weird about this, but Christ is serving in that subordinate role to God, God's self. Right? Ultimate headship. I'm not here to challenge the authority of God. I'm here to submit to the authority of God. That's Jesus' model, his example for us. He's the one who's under authority himself, as are all of us. And so Paul's making the case. And he gets into this question of, of I want you to see something else. We're going to try to pull out some things here. We can't cover all this. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head 
covered dishonors his head, right? So if, you, if you're going to be in the church, you're going to pray, you're going to prophesy, and you're going to, 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 you know, to cover your head, you're dishonoring God. You're, you're dishonoring, no, that's not what it says. You're dishonoring yourself, right? You're dishonoring yourself. Dishonors his own head. He dishonors his own head, which is Christ. And so if you do that, right? And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I want you to notice something, just real quick. It's not about ability or utility. We look at this and we go, oh, so only men can pray and prophesy in church. That's not what's said here at all. You've got to read the text. Women are going to do it, and wives in particular are going to do it in a particular way, under some authority, and, and, and uh, with the, the covering on their head, is what Paul says. And so I want you to see that, that men and women can pray and prophesy in the church, that there's an order to things, and that's what Paul's making, a case for this. And, and we're going to tie it in in the next step, so hold with me for a minute. Just hold this thought in tension, because we're going to get to this next idea, where he finds this in God's created order. Um, Everyone who prays or prophesies with head uncovered dishonors her head, and it is just as though her head were shaved. Uh, a woman does not cover her head and should have her hair cut off. It is a disgrace for a woman to cut her hair off, and uh, she ought to cover her head. Now, here's a funny thing. <clears throat> this is how it's worked itself out in church history. Hats, right? So we have this idea that, well, if you're going to pray or prophesy, you ought not have a hat on your head. So like dudes, take your hats off, right? But the funny thing is to me about this is, I don't see any women with hats on either. <laughs> and so it's like, we've kind of been going, ah. and I was thinking, like, that's a kind of a funny manifestation because one of the kind of antiquated ways that people did church was women wore hats and men didn't wear hats. And so when you came in, women had hats on and men didn't have hats on. Some of those hats were awesome. And, uh, and so I was thinking, next Sunday, hats. For the ladies? No? Okay. <laughs> so it's this idea that... Uh, but what is it really, what is he getting to? He's getting to an authority that we ought not, why? We ought not, we ought to be willing to submit to authority, why? Because we have authority issues. All of us. This isn't a women's problem, this isn't a men's problem, this is a people problem. And I'm confessing that to you myself. We have an authority problem. And, and, and he's like, when you do these things, you ought to be under some form of authority. All right? I want to say this, there's mystery here, man, because I've read this and reread this, and I'm like, what are we talking about heads and coverings and hair and hats for, Paul? I don't understand. There's some mystery here. But he's going to get into it here in verse 7. But just know that. That's one thing I want you to take away, that we are under authority. Paul is making a case for distinctions in the created order. And honestly, and this is the funny thing, the debate continues to this day, right? I said all these battles go on and on. They're still going on to this very day. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. We're going to pull this apart too. Verse 8, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign, and here it is, of authority over their head. So now that's how you get this idea, okay, it's about authority. That there's some semblance of, of being under authority that Paul says. And we're going to talk about that term uh, because of the angels as well. But here's where we get it. That we, uh, there's a created order, right? And so I'm going to try to find my, uh, no, I'm going to go back here. Yeah. 
We are uniquely created. And Paul lays that out here in verses 7 through 9. He says, um, this is all about the created order. A man ought not cover his head. Why? Because he is the image and glory of God. I want to just stop for a minute and think about that. That one of the egregious evils that we commit against one another as believers in Christ, the maker of us, as we don't see one another as image bearers of God, God's self, right? You go back to Genesis, and you see the created order here, and he said, let us make him in our image. Let us make them in our image. Man was made in the very image of God, and the word here says that, he, that, that man is the image and glory, the doxa of Theos, the, the, the glory of God. And, and this is why it's such a huge deal when we degrade God's image in ourselves. This is why it's a huge problem when we don't honor what God has created us. It created in us. Because we are the very image and glory of God. And then it's, the word says this, but the woman is the doxa of man, the glory of man. Why would that be? Because you know the creative creation narrative God made Adam and then he made everything else and then he made Eve right and it was very good and so woman and this is what Paul makes the case for in eight this is all from the created nature for man did not come from woman but woman from man he's not making some crazy truth claim and you might say wait a minute women give birth to men yeah we're gonna get there <laughs> we're getting there but for now, hold on that moment that he's saying in God's created order of things, God made man and then God took woman from man. He makes another case. Man wasn't made for woman, but woman was made for man. That's not subordination in less importance. It's just the order of things as they happened. Cerebral helper, right? And so God had made a woman. Remember, Adam was alone and it was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. Let us make a helper suitable for him. And so woman was made. And that woman, and I want you to see what the word says, is the glory of man. It's like the very best. It's not a less than thing. Because of this, because of God's sensitivity and creativity, because of who he made us to be, we ought to be in submission to him. We ought to not be... Uh, uh, rebelling against this authority. And then Paul says this, for this reason and because of the angels, and, I, and this is interesting, because what Paul believed is when the church is gathered, angels are present. Why? Why would we submit? Why would we wait to pray or prophesy? Why would we discern our gifts? Why would we share them with the church? Because Paul's making a case that ultimately in this spiritual war, in this spiritual battle, battle, angels are among us even now. And because of that, there's an order, there's an authority over us. Right? And so I just, that's a little verse for this reason, because of the angels, but he means that there's a spiritual happening happening. This is why the woman should have a sign of authority on her head if she's going to pray or prophesy. Not that she can't pray or prophesy, but that there has to be an order to these things. Okay, verse 11. In the Lord, however, you've got to love it, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Now, boy, this starts to go right back to the idea of what a marriage looks like in the church. You know, like your body don't belong to yourself, it belongs to your spouse. In the Lord, 
Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Because as woman came from man, and this is the genius, not that God needs my accolades for his created order, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So you have this idea that like God made man, but women give birth to man, and that's not an accident. And so the last point, the, the last point is we are single-minded. No, that's not it. Interdependent. We're interdependent. The idea is that we need one another, that none of us are doing this on our own, that not one of us has the authority in and of himself or herself. And this ultimate rebellion against God is offensive because it, it doesn't demonstrate our interdependence. We are not self-guided people. We are guided by the very Spirit of God. Woman came from man, even as man was born from woman. But everything comes from God, right? And so we, we're interdependent on one another. We are not independent. One of the greatest problems that we have currently in our culture is that we believe the opposite of that. We go, hey, 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 let's get all the men together over here. We're going to have a men huddle. We're talking man stuff. Let's do man stuff. And, let's, and then we look over at that, and there's, there's all these, let's get all the women over here. And we're going to do woman stuff. And then we're looking across. And that is an absolute uh, idol. It's an anathema. It's the opposite of God's intended created purpose. He's like, no, you're all together. Men should be looking askance at women and women askance at men. That's not the way he designed us. I think I told you this before, but I was so stunned by a mom who was raising sons and daughters. And, and she said, I'm raising my sons and daughters to respect each other, to love each other, and to believe that God has made men and women so that they could enjoy each other, they could be together and have a good life. Not rivals, not against. And so we're interdependent. We need one another. God's good design demonstrates that to us. And God knows that we have authority issues. And so we have this opportunity then to be in submission to one another. For as God came from man, so 13, judge for yourselves then. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God and have her head uncovered? And then Paul's going back to nature here. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for her, here's the word, glory, doxa. For long hair is given her to give her as a covering, right? If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And so he, this was an issue in the first century, in the church. There were men and women problems in the first century. And there was problems of rebellion. There's problems of, I don't have to wear my hair that way. And you got people going, I want to wear my hair how I want to wear my hair. There's a strange thing happening. Paul makes a case here that God has a created order and that he has given women long hair for their glory. But look what it says. If a man, if a man, where is it at here? If a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. And I go, boy, because I had, I had a mullet back in the day. I'm just letting y'all know. And I liked my mullet. It was awesome. And, uh, and I remember people made fun of me for my mullet. They're like, oh, yeah. Is, is that what's happening? Do you want to, do you wish you were made 
as a woman, but God made you a man. I mean, that's such a fundamental disconnect. God, I know you made me, but I wish I was made different. A woman gets out the razor. You can't tell me what I can and can't. I'm just as tough as you are. Yeah, you're, you can. You're right. You can try. God, why, 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 did, why didn't you? You should have made me a man. Made me a weak woman. I'm not a, I'm a man. And you can see manifest in our day, and Paul could see it manifest in his day, this absolute unsettling of God's created order. We, what we do, we sacrifice the glory of God by believing that we have a better plan for ourselves. That's what we do. We sacrifice the glory of God. So, I want to go back to where we started. I told you to draw that circle, right? Nine names around it. People who have influenced you spiritually. Spiritual examples. I said to you, maybe you consider praying at your meals, maybe at your family, maybe out in public. We've talked about the opportunity we have. Listen to me, I want to say something to you. The reality is that in the church, we're examples to one another. You go, I just, I come on Sundays. That's, no, no, you're modeling your faith for people around you. You're a parent in your home, you're believing. You're modeling faith to your children. Hold up, you're a child in your parents' house. You're living there. Just, I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. No, no, no. You're modeling your faith for your parents. Go to school, your friends, go to work, your coworkers. Listen to me. You're modeling your beliefs all the time. I told you we want to thank God today. Listen, I thank God for you. I, I spend time going through my mental table of who sets around it and I'm going to say God has used so many of you to influence my faith look around the room there's people around you influencing your faith here's the thing look around the room there's people around you whose faith you're influencing don't miss it church don't miss it why should we be submitted unto God why should we be discerning about what we do because we're modeling behavior for one another I thank God for it I hope you do too Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be like you, that we are made in your image, that, that we're for your glory, that, that you are pleased with us, that you are saving us from our very sinful selves and for our tendency to follow after the idols of our hearts. Lord, today, I, I'm sure, you know, I felt it myself, Lord, these things, I step on my own toes. It's like, oh, you, you step on our toes, Father, and you get in our way. And, we want things, we feel that sinful rebellion, but today, Lord, we lay it at your feet and we say, no, we don't. We don't. We want you. Oh, Lord, that we would just submit unto you. Lord, that we would believe in our unique creation, that we would know that you made us for your glory and for your purpose, and that, we would, that we would not look at our lives and assess it as some form of brokenness that has fallen too far from your purview, that you just made a mistake we, we know that's not true but that you've made us for your glory Lord for those areas of our heart and our lives we need to be submitted to all the time we pray we would do that and help us Father to, 
to be after your glory every day, to be seeking after you. We love you so much. I thank you, Father, for the way you challenge us to listen to you and learn from you. Help us to submit to you now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.